This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. I think they like you. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruth Wisher. It's my enormous pleasure to be chairing this very special uh, Edinburgh International Book Festival event held in conjunction with Edinburgh University and in particular with the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And the event's being held in association with the university's Global Justice Academy. Now, our guest this evening is a man whose activities as a campaigner for civil rights as a liberal politician and as a statesman making significant interventions on the world stage span many decades. We saw him shoulder to shoulder with the late Martin Luther King in the 60s and in tears of jubilation in 2008 when his, his country elected its first black president. He's made little secret of his belief that the fight for equality stretches beyond race into every area of life where oppression of the dispossessed is found. As much as any other person, he's redefined the all-embracing meaning of civil rights and fought staunchly and passionately for them, often at no little personal cost. We might wonder how different America might be today had his early campaigns to become the presidential candidate for the Democratic Party in the 1980s been successful. But arguably, arguably it was those bids and those of others which <coughs> laid the groundwork for Barack Obama, Obama's eventual success. President Obama stands on the shoulders of many giants. Yet as we know, his occupancy of the White House has failed to stem a new tide of racism. In the last months and years, we've seen wide divisions in US society, from the disproportionate number of young black men who go to prison, to the slaughter of unarmed black civilians by a police force, which sometimes seems unconvinced that in the words of the current slogan, Black Lives Matter. These events must be particularly dispiriting for a man who's devoted his life to eradicating inequity and promoting racial harmony. But one of the qualities which has been the hallmark of his long and distinguished career is resilience, as I suspect we're just about to find out. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Let me express my thanks and delight. I'm humbled to be in your presence tonight, but the joy it is to be with you. As I reflect upon where we are tonight, uh, 50 years after the Voting Rights Act in 1965, and think about the campaigns of 84 and 88, um, in so many ways we are a big, we are a greater and better America tonight 
there is this wave of hope and this undercurrent of despair. There is the need for a tug of war, the soul of our country and the soul of the Western world. If you turn the rope loose, you enable those who are the cynics to take over. We must go forward by hope and not backwards by fear. We are no longer foreigners. Uh, science and social media has dwarfed distance with speed and, and time. They are no more foreigners. They are no longer migrants, they are neighbors. We've learned to survive apart. Now we have a bigger challenge, learning to live together. We have learned to survive apart. Separated by languages and mountains and oceans. But that too has given way to the reality of the distance of speed being dwarfed by, by science of our time. There must be some sense, as we gave a lecture on the Magna Carta last night, that no king, no queen is above the rules of law. We live in our faith. We live under the law. The law, the natural law, not the normal law, because what's normal may not be natural, may not be fair, may not be just. I cannot help but think about being in Hyde Park some years ago, urging Mr. Bush and Mr. Blair not to invade and occupy Iraq. They did so against the public will. We lost lives and money and honor. Now the bill has to be paid. So we're losing infrastructure and workers and jobs and education because we're not paying the bill for what never should have been fought in the first place. In part, they were able to do it because there was no penalty to pay. They live above the law. If these had been heads of, a, of smaller nations, they'd have been before the world court tonight. But these men lived above the law, and therefore their absolute power, as Tennyson suggests, corrupts Absolutely. Some time ago, I watched the uh, Olympics, Athletic Olympics in China. As for the Trade Olympics, there's consternation because of cheap labor and lack of human rights and the like for the Trade Olympics. But for the Athletic Olympics, there was no, there was no fight because we do well on the Athletic Olympics the fastest runner may be from Jamaica. The swimmer may be from America. The gymnast may be from Japan or some other place. What allows us to get along so well in the very tough competition of physical combat uh, on the soccer field, uh, on the basketball court, or the tennis court, or running track, or boxing? Because whenever the ground is even, and the goals are public. Whenever the ground is, 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 is even, the goals are public, the rules are fair, and the referee is fair, and the score is transparent, we get along. Whenever the ground rules are even and the rules are public, and the goals are flair, and, and, and the school is transferred, we get along. But beyond the athletic field, 
playing field is not even. Rules not public, goals not fair. We play by two sets of rules. I'm closing this thought tonight. There's a big issue in Britain and the U.S. about migrants. The issue here is migration in America, or the immigration. It's this gap between those who have more than they need and those who don't have enough. This gap between those who live in the surplus culture and those who live in the deficit culture. And so long as uh, one side of the river is parched, the other side is green, people will come to where the grass is greener. The answer is not to contain them or ban them, but to develop them. After all, who are they? Our neighbors, our friends, with whom we must learn to live together and not die apart. Thank you very much. spoke a moment ago, Reverend Jackson, about um, the Obama presidency. Um, it was a time of great hope for everybody who believed in the kind of values he was espousing when he was elected. As we get towards the end of his second term of his presidency, how many of these hopes have been fulfilled and how many have been dashed? Um, in track and field, you're measured by how fast you run. And there's no mitigating factor except the wind factor. In the contact sport like politics, you must be measured against the resistance of the wind. You're facing a headwind, not a tailwind. And so there was a campaign of hope prevail the campaign of, of hurt and fear and cynicism has been the opposition. The day that he was inaugurated, that same day it has been reported that the right wing had a meeting. How can we defeat him? Not how can we seize the moment and make America better and a world more secure? How can we defeat him? The senator, president of the Senate from Kentucky, so we have one goal, one goal, not even complicated, not to wipe out malnutrition, not to afford health care, not full employment, defeat him. Well, that's a staunch opposition. In spite of that opposition, he has not lowered the barriers of his dignity. Despite that, the week he came into office, we lost 800,000 jobs because of the meltdown with Bush and the banks. We've not lost a job a month in the last six years. Some months higher, some lower. The economy has rebounded. One can argue that because the banks of the U.S. and Britain went down at the same time, we bailed out the banks. We said they were too big to fail. I can accept that, but not linked to lending another reinvestment. That I can't accept. Because the banks have a surplus they never had because of zero interest loans. 
Now they cannot even lend to the people that they violated in the first place. So much of the banks have been sued and lost to suits for targeting people of color and the poor. Subprime lending, predatory lending. They bail out, people locked out. But the fact of the matter is the economy is strong and growing. The second piece is that more Americans today have health care than ever before in, the, in its history. Tens of millions now have health care, but some of them have been left so confused by their leadership, they want affordable care but don't want Obamacare. <laughs> it means they want an omelet but don't want the eggs. <laughs> They're confused. Seven years later, we were drawn troops from, from Iraq, a war that never should have been fought. We have reconnected with Cuba, which should have been done a long time ago. There's now a multilateral agreement with Iran, which will no doubt uh, survive the, the resistance to it. So in so many ways, the things are looking up. It's hard to imagine I'm from South Carolina, a state with four million people. A million are Medicaid eligible or they are poor. 250,000 have no health insurance. A little over 500,000 are white and the rest are African American. Here's a state with a $7 billion budget, refuses to accept a $12 billion, nine-to-one ratio health care plan. People without insurance fighting, with ins without insurance fighting to be a against insurance. Uh, it's hard to imagine that kind of resistance. But in spite of that, the good news is, in spite of that, we made the right choice, the right votes, and we still are winning. These are significant Advances, of course, and significant triumphs. You've mentioned Cuba, you've mentioned Iran, um, health care, of course. All of these things um, have been done on his watch. But I guess what many people expected to happen on his watch was that the atmosphere, the racist atmosphere in America would be ameliorated. And instead, with the succession of black shootings, uh, shootings of, of African-American citizens that I alluded to. Instead, in some ways, despite having a black president, it almost seems to have exacerbated race relations. But those who shot the blacks are not those who voted for him. I think I got that. Um, but they had a license to do it. it, it, it of course they didn't. And that, that, the fact of the matter is, numerically, more whites have been shot by police than blacks. Ratio, more black shot, seven to one ratio. We simply become much too violent. We make the most guns and we shoot them. Americans have approximately three guns per person on the average. We make the most bombs and we drop them. The biggest military investment and we are occupying space all over the world. So there is a violent culture. When Dr. King said we were the most violent nation on earth, he was roundly attacked. He was right. We really, there are those who really believe that might is right. I believe right is might. And ultimately, those who are right, if they're morally right and persistent, prevail. 
but there's a price to be paid. Uh, uh, it's hard, it's almost like a, it's a backlash. A, a mom I even called it the blacklash. And Dr. King would say, when we are going forward, making progress, there's a sense that all is well, and there's hope and optimism. Then when the, when the, when the cold wind of adversity comes, people begin to calculate the losses, not the pluses. Well, put it this way. In 1965, blacks had been denied the right to vote for 95 years since 1870. Blacks couldn't vote. White women in the South couldn't serve on juries. 18-year-olds were serving in Vietnam could not vote. You could not vote on campuses. You couldn't vote bilingually. You could not get proportional representation at, as a delegate at conventions. And yet we kept fighting. One of the significant dimensions of the campaign that we were able to run, the first go around, we got far more popular votes than delegate votes. Several million popular votes, only 400 delegates. We determined that something called winner take all, where if one person gets 47% and one gets 50.1, they get all 100%. And that system undermines reasonable participation, growing participation. We get the rules changed to proportional representation. If I get 47% of the votes, I get that number of delegates. So next time around, my delegate count went up to 1,200 as opposed to 400. Well, in night. 2008, when President Barack ran against Hillary Clinton, on the 84 rules, she would have been the winner. She won California, barely, Texas, barely, Ohio and Pennsylvania. On the 84 rules, she would have been the winner, but would win to take all. But with the 88 rules, he was the winner because she can only get the number of delegates that she won with, not the 100% that she didn't win with. So it, it seemed that when we democratized democracy, we determined the outcome. Now, a part of what must happen now is that there's, the, and it's just like when we had the, head, the tailwind coming out of uh, the Civil War. After 246 years of slavery, we thought it was the grand time. Then Lincoln was killed. Grand time. Tilden Hayes compromised. Grand time. When they removed the troops from protecting the ex-slaves between 1883 and 1950, 4,200 blacks were lynched, beheaded, driven north as refugees, the politics of terror. Some states had majority of black populations. All of that was depopulated. So behind the headwind of abolition, came the headwind of, of lynchings. So behind the headwind of moving, the tailwind of moving forward, the right to vote and electing new officials, come to stone a stubborn resistance. And in the face of that, we must hold on to the rope of hope and defeat those who are holding the rope of hurt. And we cannot turn, and we will not turn loose. Though you have said very recently that there is still what you've termed structural prejudice within 
every aspect of American society. That's because every time that we advanced forward, we got free but never got equal. After 246 years of legal slavery, we finally got free of barbarity and the ridiculousness of owning somebody. We, we got free. The freedom without repair for damage done, freedom without reconstruction, you are free to starve, to be unhoused, to be uneducated. Those who had the advantage of education, the advantage of wealth and skills, maintained all of them and shared none of them. So, the result is, those who had the 246 year advantage of slavery kept it. We got free, but they maintained control of the infrastructure of slavery. The result is, effort and excellence means a lot, but inheritance and access means more. So they maintain the power to inherit without even necessarily having any sense of merit. And then, but we had the right to vote because in, in the deal was the troops protecting us from the former slave masters. That lasted from 1865 to 1883. When those troops left, the lynch mobs came. We had no right to vote. We, we couldn't serve on juries. When Emmett Till was lynched and Meg Evers was shot on his doorsteps about voting, The juries knew that the killers were guilty. There were no blacks from the juries. They said they could not imagine a white man going to jail for killing a nigger. That Dr. King, part of his argument was, if we give us the vote we'll, and the ballot, then we'll have the right to serve on juries. So that, that was to help to mitigate some of that. Fireworks. <laughs> um, that was, to, that was to, to mitigate some of that. Um, but that was an element that never gave up the Confederate flag or its ideology. So against those odds, we made progress. And I must say progress. I was jailed with seven classmates in 1960 trying to use a public library. We can use the library now. The day Dr. King gave the address in Washington, most people hear the alliterative poetic climax, I have a dream. But what's missing is that um, the context of it was that from Texas across to Florida up to Maryland, we couldn't use a single public toilet. Our money was counterfeited. We could not buy ice cream at Howard Johnson or rent a room at the Holiday Inn. My father and other veterans had to sit behind knots of prisoners of war on American military bases the day he gave that speech. We left that back, going back to a segregated South that day. Now, with the hope and the drive and the coalition, we got a 64 public accommodation, 64 public accommodation bill that ruled it out, the 65 Voting Rights Act that gave us strength. But even today, the Voting Rights Act is under attack. Even today, the, the laws would apply to reasonable equality, affirmative action is under attack. And so it is against the odds and against the, against the headwind
that we continue. We are a persecuted minority. You mentioned the flag, and, and we're not so very many weeks from the massacre in Charleston. And that for people looking from the other side of the Atlantic, it beggars belief that there should be a debate about flying the Confederate flag over a public building. So it seems to me that these kind of prejudices of which you spoke are still deeply entrenched in the part of America from which you came. Can you imagine a state in Germany having the right to fly a Nazi flag? It's, 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 it's ridiculously unreasonable. When Robert E. Lee, the first, there are two Confederate flags, by the way. The first flag was when the South sought to engage in secession from the Union so they can overthrow the government and slavery. They lost that war. They sought to ally with Britain and France to, to run the cotton industry. They lost that war. When they lost that war, Robert E. Lee submitted, surrendered the flag to U.S. Grant at Appomattox and said, now let's focus on healing the wounds of war because we lost 700,000 Americans more than we lost in, in any other war before or since. He said, even when I died, I want to convert the flag on my gravesite. But that was an element that never gave up. They said, we didn't lose the war, we never stopped fighting. They want to maintain slavery. They wanted to maintain the will, the right to secede. They couldn't secede militarily, but they seceded mentally at that time. But the flag was a non-issue until 1961, 100 years after 1861. They celebrated it by making the flag state law in South Carolina again. It began to come back up, strange enough, in 1948 when Harry Truman ran, and uh, Truman declared that we should outlaw federal, at the federal level, lynching. We should desegregate the military. In reaction to desegregating the military and, and making lynching a federal crime, the reaction by Strom Thurmond from South Carolina was that they would fly the flag again, the Dixocrats. And they kept flying it back and forth around 60 when they made, they made, they made it law. So the first flag was furled and su surrendered to end secession and slavery. The second flag was to end desegregation. And while they have, while they have failed to end racial separation, they succeeded in resource separation. So the flag is down, but the flag agenda is still up. So blacks are 30% of that state, for example, Without, without one percent of the state contracts. You get my point? The, yeah. the similar is down, but the substance of access to capital, industry, technology, deal flow, but the agenda remains strong. Let me just pick up something else we talk, you talked about just a moment ago, which brings in comprehension on this side of the Atlantic, and that's the gun laws. I mean, we, we understand about the amendment, the right to bear arms and so forth, but the right to bear arms doesn't seem to me about housewives having machine guns. It doesn't seem to me about being able to buy guns without proper identification at a, at a trade fair. And when we had in Scotland a tragedy a number of years ago when a number of primary school children were gunned down, and you had the same tragedy in Newton, and yet still nobody can pass a serious gun law. 
One thing I can't do is to explain the irrational rationally. Um, the danger of these weapons, not only do they shoot up school children at Sandy Hook and shoot up theaters, the, the police cannot have weapons as, as strong and as automatic as can individuals from the gun shops. These weapons can bring down planes. They don't have to go in the airport and, and go through the security check. They can stand outside the airport from their cars and bring down planes. And so by allowing these weapons to be on the street and so accessible, begs the question of security and terrorists. Because it allows, it allows domestic terrorists to abound. And so it is the Sandy Hook shooting is the shooting in Texas. It is, it is the constant fear. And every time the issue of too many guns come up, there's a, such a strong gun lobby. Now, what is striking to me about that is that each incident becomes worse than the last one. Last year before last, they shot up the White House from outside the grounds of the White House. The president was not there at that time, nor his wife. But if they had been having a White House reception on the lawn, the bullets couldn't have stopped. So it's just, it's just fundamentally wrong and dangerous to have such easy access to weapons, particularly when so many people on the streets were mentally ill. The first case they make when they're caught is I, I tripped out. But if you can see that that is the, the road to mayhem and the road to domestic terrorism. Why can't the legislators see that? They may be blinded by the corruption of their politics and therefore cannot, cannot see what they're looking at. Uh, the National Rifle Association targets candidates. Um, Interesting verb. They, they target <laughs> candidates to defeat them and they leverage money and fear. Uh, and people say that I need my gun to protect my house. Most guns kill relatives and people that they know. Most gunfire takes place by a, a family member who got upset emotionally over some issue and went and got the gun. Uh, it's not an, a shootout at high noon who has the best gun. It's almost always a relative that's... We lost, America lost about 6,000 Americans killed in the Iraq war. And maybe about 60,000 injured. We lose 30,000 people a year to gunfire. Five times more than we lost in 10 years in Iraq. And yet there's this, there's this belief, uh, talking about Second Amendment, the Second Amendment, when we were fighting, quote unquote, the British and fighting foreign battles on the battlefield, the idea was if you were attacked, you could defend yourself because we were in a kind of state of war. Other people who live in the real rural areas, we needed weapons shooting wild animals and bad for food, or even for sport. But now to have the right to have a concealed, an unconcealed weapon on your person 
can only shoot people. You can go in the Texas legislature or Oklahoma legislature today with your semi-automatic weapon, not conceal and carry, open and carry. There's nothing to stop you from going inside of or walking up the door and open fire. So yeah, we are playing with mayhem with such easy access that such power for gone. We're much too violent. The evidence is much too clear. And the cost, not of the dead, but the cost of the injured. The medical cost of the injured who don't die is catastrophic. It may be the single biggest bill in the American health, health system. Those who are shot and live 30 or 40 years in a wheelchair, 30 or 40 years crippled in some way. Reverend Jackson, I want to let the audience um, have their way with you, but, um, <laughs> but there's a couple of things about contemporary politics I want to ask you, and, and uh, I'll, it's, it's two questions, but it's about the same thing in a way. It's about the upcoming elections in America. What do you think of Hillary Clinton, and how the hell did Donald Trump get to become a candidate? <laughs> I would feel bad about that, but Miss Thatcher won. <laughs> and Ronald Ron Reagan won. Well, it, it's strange on the Republican side, first, with 17 candidates, 25% comes out the pack. Now, Donald Trump has done a, a number of things that are astonishing. He said some things about women that ordinarily would have eliminated one from competition, but it has not stopped us. So what is driving him? He spent a lot of time building political capital arguing President Obama was not born in America, the so-called Bertha movement. People went to get his birth certificate uh, and from Hawaii, and met with the doctor who delivered him. Would have met with his mother, except she was dead. Met everybody they could find to prove he was born in America. But he gained traction on the Bertha movement. Now the next move is to make a position that those who are born in America are no longer Americans. That the people coming at us inciting more fear are. The idea that 11 million undocumented workers, most of whom do work and can't get benefits because they're not citizens, uh, they should be deported. The idea of mass deportation would seem to be utterly irrational. But there are those who believe that they don't have a job because some undocumented worker took their job. First, they didn't take a job. For the most part, we sent for them. And many of them have jobs that we others do not even want. The jobs they lost went to bomb in Iraq. The we lost several trillion dollars in the Iraq misadventure. What could that do to a given budget today? In Iraq, we lost lives, money, and honor, and created ISIS as a byproduct of that misadventure. And those who led that campaign have no accountability for having done it. They maintain public honor and still give big public speeches. 
I understand why Trump could no, gain, on, the, on the Trump side could could gain some traction, but by pressing these buttons. But he is crazy. <laughs> but in a democracy, crazy people have the right to vote. But no, are uh, uh, certain the people who are uh, I would not call them crazy. People who are incited by fear and not so good information. How can I put this? I do not want to demean people who make that choice. It, put it this way, last week that was on television, a, a white man and his wife whose son had been shot by the police. And they were told that their son was shot uh, challenging the police. They said they don't believe they knew their son. So they had an autopsy done. He was shot in the back. So he was not shot by the police charging them. He was shot in the back. But they concluded that that had been a black family that had been a big protest. That's because black ministers and neighbors would have been protesting the fact they got shot. But the silence by the white church the silence by the white community betray their own self. These are the same people who get shot in one protest, are denied health insurance, and vote for those who deny them health insurance. I cannot explain something that irrational. They said we keep reaching out for those persons to bring them into the fold. These are the same people, and I must say, I see some progress against all of this stuff. People who were taught not so long ago, they should not sit by a black in the public space, could not use the same toilet, could not drink water from the same fountain, could go to the same football game. They now, they, they crowd the big football games. There's a new South. Well, the, the professional teams are there, the biggest, the champion teams are there. But we learn to play ball together. We've learned to sit together. So all we've learned to work together, we've learned to fight war together, we've not yet quite learned to live and vote together. That, that's another step that must be taken. One last thing, you, you slightly body swerved the question about Hillary Clinton. Are you supportive of her candidacy? I've not made that decision yet. I'm focusing right now on the agenda, not the candidate. I hope that we are successful in getting our agenda put on the table. For example, Bernie Sanders has shown great strength in this season. And his strength comes from the fact that he's challenged the banks whose behavior of polarizing concentrated wealth and, and, and working class people is offensive. In America today, student loan debt is greater than student loan debt is greater than credit card debt. America's CEOs are making hundreds of times more than regular people. So there's this economic gap, and there's this racial gap, and gender gap, and wealth gap. So he's drawing huge numbers of people who feel alienated from the economic system. Hillary, on the other hand, has maintained her lead to diminishing somewhat. She's under severe attack every day because she has a track record and a bother people who believe in her. I related to her in the uh, in bill across the years. Hillary, when I first met her, she was working down in the, in the 
the Delta of Arkansas and Mississippi helping poor black people who, who couldn't afford a lawyer. She worked with the Children's Defense Fund, Bill's co-partner in re reshaping Arkansas politics. They won the White House. She tried to get a health care bill through. Uh, she became a U.S. Senator, a sterling record. Uh, she, um, uh, in addition to that, uh, became Secretary of State and did a formidable job there. So she has the right stuff with which to win, but my interest is not that. My interest is we need an urban reconstruction policy. I want to see who, who, who's going to deal with our interests. In Chicago, for example, on the black side of town and brown side of town, unemployment is like 30%. Near the north side, white side of town, is less than 3%. Suburbs, jobs, wanted signs. Uh, that's because over here there's no investment. Guns in, drugs in, jobs out. Out to cheap labor market. So in some sense, in some sense the urban policy is, is the trade policy. Now, the conventional banks would not lend money for reconstruction. So we need a development bank, something like the Marshall Plan. That is what made the Marshall Plan significant was not a gift. It was 50-year loans that 2% government secured long-term low-interest loans as opposed to conventional rate loans. So we knew who wants to talk about the development bank and the plan for reconstruction will, will get my interest. Right now, there's so much positioning on, on polls, there's almost no agenda on the substance. And I'm really interested before I make another step in the substance of the matter. Because if we elect somebody else again and things don't change, then we have engaged in exercise, not in change. We're going to put the lights up now so that the audience can ask some questions. We've got two uh, microphones in Reverend Jackson. How many of y'all on Twitter? <laughs> Raise your hand if you're on Twitter. Uh, at Rev J. Jackson. <laughs> How many of y'all on Facebook? Like me, Reverend Jesse L. Jackson Sr. <laughs> got that little commercial out of the way. Now that the commercial's out the way, we're going to take some questions. Right, there's, there's two just quite close by there, if we could get a mic to them. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned uh, Reagan and Thatcher earlier, which um, I think a lot of people in Scotland uh, aren't particularly happy about in terms of their relationship and what it brought neoliberalism to the UK and the effect on rich versus poor gap, which is now closer to the US than it currently is. But the latest thing, I, you know, I'd never heard of Bernie Sanders until quite recently. You mentioned him a moment ago. And I had the word socialist attached to Bernie Sanders. I thought, Jesus, I don't believe this. Um, but then I, when I read a bit more, I actually, I, I understand he's called the Democratic sheepdog candidate, who's the guy who's supposed to keep the left on side whilst Hillary wins the job. Now, interestingly enough, in this country, we have a candidate called Jeremy Corbyn, who I think was the sheepdog candidate for the Labour Party, but it ain't working, and there's a good chance he's going to be elected. Is there any chance of anybody other than a mainstream candidate being elected in the US in the way that he might be elected as a party leader? Thank you. You know, when someone draws 100,000 people in a week in five engagements, you can't call that marginal. Those are like real people. That's mainstream. I said to Bernie Sanders three or four days ago 
Just as President Barack finally addressed head on the race issue, I am black, but I also am competent and also am committed, he must address the social category. The fact of the matter is, Adam Smith would not find a home in America today. Social Security is socialist. The interstate highway is 90% federal, 10% state social. The subsidy of hospitals, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, bailing out banks on the pure capital they would have gone under. And so there is socialism for the wealthy and capitalism for the poor, paying regressive taxes. So I think the label is far less an issue with me than the direction. Whoever has a voice to make banks more accountable uh, and to and bring back the glass to the lack where there's some limit, there's some, there's some sky. Whoever has the most plan to raise the wages and benefits of working people, and the most plan to educate our youth rather than incarcerate them, they deserve our support. And so I think we should not run from label A to label B. Let's run from substance A to substance B. Gentleman at the back, or lady at the back, sorry. Sorry. Uh, hi, um, Jesse. I just actually wanted to ask a very similar question. <laughs> that guy asked it a lot better than me. Um, about Bernie Sanders, I know you said you'd met with him a few days ago. I read that in the news also. Um, what, what is your thoughts about the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment and how they have kind of um, been sort of interrupting his speeches and how they've moved that forward and how you, you see that personally? Well, Black Lives Matter, which is kind of born out of um, Ferguson, Missouri to some extent, uh, challenging all the candidates, including Hillary, including Bernie, including the rest of them, to have a more of a black consciousness. Because um, black lives have been mattering for a long time, but there was not much consciousness. I mean, black lives mattered for 246 years of slavery. But the Constitution said we were three-fifths of a human. They were saying black life didn't matter. When 4,200 blacks were lynched between 1883 and 1950, uh, and the North did not come to the rescue of the former slaves, it mattered then. Uh, today, blacks are number one in infant mortality, number one in short life expectancy, number one in unemployment. Black life matters facing race discrimination every day. We are a persecuted minority. We build coalition and we go forward, but we are facing real persecution uh, every day. And so I think that the extent to which the young people will say what is your position on criminal justice? What's your plan for urban policy? Kind of where Black, Matter Life, Black Life Matters came from, it, this recent uh, lifting of it, is Trayvon Martin killed and the killer walks free. Rodney King beaten, you see it on television, and the police walk free. Abdul Diallo shot 41 times in the back by police, and they walk free. Uh, the uh, Diallo, uh, Ab uh, Abner Luima, rammed in the rectum, he nearly bled to death, the police walk free. And so at some point, then they said, hell, black life matters. It comes, it comes out of that context. But since Michael Brown has been killed, 30 other blacks have been killed, 
including the young black were killed in St. Louis just this past weekend. So we, we deserve equal and adequate protection, and we're not getting it. That's, that's the rub. We deserve equal and adequate protection under the law, and we're not getting it. I'm not sure that because somebody is president, they can stop at the bottom this kind of violence, because while black lives matter, the children who kill in Santa Hook, they matter too. The whites killed in the theater in Colorado, they matter too. All lives ultimately matter. We simply become much too violent. And you combine the, the weapons with the vitriol of hatred and fear, that's a toxic combination. More questions? Could I apologize? Could we get a, a mic here, please? Could I apologize for the Republican firework display in the middle? Let's stop for a minute. Yes, sir. I think we've got a mic. Well, have we got one there as well? Yes, sir. And uh, what, what, what I'm surprised at, as much as I was excited about the Obama presidency and the election of Barack, was when the events happened in, with Tavon in Florida and with the Ferguson situation, and he didn't go out. He didn't go out to the people. And uh, to me, that was uh, hard to accept. Uh, I know the first time he, he did go out and he got criticized. So I guess the second time he figured he wouldn't go out and of course he got more criticized. So I mean, how do you deal with this situation? Well, two things. One of them, uh, my uh, oldest granddaughter, uh, he is her grandfather. <laughs> That's the first thing. So that I cannot, was the positive I, 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 discrimination there then, yeah. Real integration. <laughs> but I um, cannot explain certain the strategies of the White House. Uh, I can only hope for an even greater sensitivity. I think that clearly that the president is up here and a lot of this infrastructure killing is taking place down here. And one reason why I am slow sometimes to engage in certain levels of criticism, I do not want to give false comfort to our adversaries, with whom there's even a greater sense of complaint. I remember when, right after he was elected, Professor Gates from Harvard came home from a trip to China and was, and was arrested in his home by Sergeant Cowley, a white policeman and arrest him in his home and humiliated, humiliated him in his home. And it was ridiculous. So he said, let's, have a, let's just resolve this, guys. This is just kind of silly. Let's not make this the big... He was roundly criticized for trying to resolve amicably an absurd situation. But the fact of the matter is, if a Harvard professor can be arrested in his house for being in the wrong house, Clearly, those who had been arrested on the road for driving while black had a greater case. So it, it took place, sir, in a bigger arena. But I think there's been a lot of appeal for the president, not only him, but others to get even more involved. There are those who say that rising tides lift all boats. But all boats are not even. Some boats have more cargo in them. 
And the black boat has semen in it. It's on the bottom. And rising tides do not necessarily lift that boat. So unless there's some targeted commitment to deal with the, riot, with the black boat, it will not rise. Right now, it remains the most unemployed. It remains the least access to capital, industry, and technology because enough attention has not been paid to it. And of course, I argue case, you've got to target uh, the black crisis to lift it up. It's kind of like people say, well, it's a false, it's equal, but it's a false sense of equality. It's like a ham and egg sandwich. I call it ham and egg justice. You come to your house, somebody's cooking the ham and the egg, and the, and the smell blends like a ham and egg sandwich. But when you have a ham and egg sandwich, the hog never agrees with it. And the chicken does. <laughs> the chicken drops an egg. The hog has to drop a leg, so <laughs> it may seem equal, but a ham and egg sandwich really is not equal. Gentlemen, there with the mic. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jesse. Um, 1988, you ran for the nomination, Democratic candidate. Now, British politicians stand for election, American politicians run for election. I don't know if that says anything. But there was TV coverage, a British television correspondent interviewed some people in the street, random American citizens in the street. And he interviewed a black gentleman and asked, would he vote for you if you were candidate for president? Say that again there. Uh, some British... TV respondents were interviewing random US citizens in the street, 1988. And he interviewed a black gentleman asking, would he vote for you? And he said no, and followed up his remark with, what, what does this colour matter? Now, that was an education because I think the prevailing assumption over here at least was that the black population would vote for you. It came as a surprise. And I, I wanted to ask you, how much of a surprise, or would it have been one at all, in American television? That the oftentimes minorities may internalize oppression and act it out. He could not imagine a black person winning. Many officials who didn't vote for me in 84, as we won their districts, voted in 88. President Barack said to me one day, we were downtown talking, and he said, he looked at the debate that we had in Columbia with Senator Hart and Mondale, and he watched the debate and said, this can happen. We were sowing seeds, recognizing mental barriers as to what was possible. So many of those who in 84 and 88 got a taste of it, felt emboldened by 08. It's a long distance struggle. We must not be short-sighted. And I've, I feel as good tonight as if I had won because I made a contribution to the process. And, and, and that's all any of us can do is in our own time try to advance the ball forward. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm really sorry that we're out of time here because this is a man who's made an immense contribution, not just in his own country, but as, as we heard earlier, all over the world, he's a very special person and we're very privileged to have him amongst us tonight. I'd ask you before you thank him formally, I'd ask you, 
I know you're going to drop, but give me a second. Um, I'd ask you to let uh, Reverend Jackson leave without mobbing him because he's got a very important engagement because he's being honoured tonight by Edinburgh University. Please join me in thanking wait, 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 wait. the Reverend Jesse Jackson. <laughs> I, I, I want two minutes of liberty. I want about three people. I want you to ask a question real fast. I may or may not answer them, but shoot it real fast. I'll let you go. Question. Twenty-seven years old. To what extent with your work as a civil rights activist be secure when there are multiple African Americans running for the Republican nomination? Say that one To what extent with your work as a civil rights activist be secure when there are multiple African Americans? running for the Republican nomination? When you have people running from the same race on both sides, you can then choose ideas. If, if I'm pulling for Chelsea. Wrong team up here, Jesse. And you, and you pulling for Manchester. I'm trying to say something here. If there's one black on one team and the others of them will not integrate the team. You might can pull for the black cause of it. But if you get blacks on both teams, it's uniform color, not skin color. So at some point in time, we have to grow beyond the limitations and fears of race. And that's a matter of maturity. That's right. Somebody who's African-American should run for prime minister of Britain because it makes sense to do so and try to test what the population is. When, 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 when Trump does these things, he's, he's testing where the population is on, to the far right. There's no reason why somebody who is a British citizen, who is of African, of Caribbean descent, shouldn't run, test you, and test the public. Last one, I can go, yes ma'am. And so forth. What is your advice to us about tackling st structural racism, everyday racism? Well, people really, since racism is such a debilitating disease, ought to want to get well. <laughs> Jesus won on one occasion, if I might say came to a man who had been sitting by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And he said, every time I get ready to get well, someone always passes me by, and they get well, and they go home. So when Jesus came, he didn't heal him, because other folk had been walking past him for a long. He said, do you want to get well? One would think the answer would be yes or no. He took 26 words and never answered yes or no. Every time I get ready to get in the water, somebody always chip in front of me. Those who are racist, or who've been exposed to it in their household, ought to want to get because racism is a mental disease. Racism is politically divisive. It's economically exploitative. It drives in one a sense of irrationality. You run your own tests. Don't just base upon my protests. Run your own tests. 
how far do you go? Is it all right for, for my daughter to marry a black or my son to marry a, a black? Uh, am I willing to lend somebody money who's staying in zone A as opposed to zone B? Racism has limited the talent pool. And the good news, well, it has limited the talent pool. You agree with that? And so to overcome it, and so racism is a sin. And the wage of sin is death. We did not know how good soccer could be until everybody could play. We don't know how good British politics can be or Scottish politics can be until everybody can vote based upon their interests, not upon their fears. Thank you very much. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.